I want you to imagine if one day you got randomly pulled into a meeting with a super rich individual. Let's say for the sake of imagination, it's that it was Kevin O'Leary. You know who Kevin O'Leary is? He's the Canadian multimillionaire businessman and investor. He's been a star on the TV shows Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. And he's been making ways lately of actually possibly looking at a political career. But anyway, let's say you got pulled into this meeting with Mr. O'Leary and he took a liking to you for some reason and told you, you know what? Ask me for anything that my money can buy. I've got $400 million, and for a moment here, I'm going to put it at your disposal. What would you like? I'll get it for you. What would you ask for? Maybe you think practically, and you think, well, I'd love for my student loans or mortgage to be paid off. Or you think materially, ask for a a new car, a new home. I mean, with this kind of money, you could ask for a private jet. Maybe you think financially, you just ask, you know, give my bank account a boost, would you? (laughs) Now, let's change that situation a bit. Let's say, instead of offering you something, Mr. O'Leary told you, I'd like to give something to one of your good friends. And I want you to choose. So you can think of one of your friends in your mind. And she says, ask me for anything, and I will make sure that your friend gets that. What would you ask for then? What would you ask for to bless your friend? Now, this imaginary situation is merely a pale and poor reflection of the immense privilege that we have in prayer. We aren't randomly pulled into an office and given a one-time offer by a rich tycoon. But we are graciously beckoned into the throne room of God, the God of the universe, who is infinitely rich and powerful and loving. And we're told by this God, tell me anything. Share, come draw near to me. Ask me anything, even. Now, we aren't promised to get whatever we ask for, but our prayers will be answered if we ask within God's will and plan. We're also not told just to pray for ourselves, but for others, those around us, for one another. We're asked, what would you like for them? What should I give to them? So, what do we ask God for in these times? What do we pray for, for ourselves or for other people? Most of our prayers, I think, tend to be filled with short-term and self-centered requests and petitions, right? For things that money can buy, or for our own health, or our safety. It's not inherently wrong to ask God for those things, but let me tell you, this is setting our sights insanely low when we pray. It's like a millionaire offering you anything and you asking for five bucks. God tells us to ask him for anything and we ask him to heal our colds. Our sights are glued on the short term and the temporary, and the earth-bound. 
Have you ever wondered, though, what God actually thinks we should ask of him? We should pray for? Because he actually tells us. He tells us what we should pray for many times in his word. Sometimes he does so explicitly, say, in the Lord's Prayer, when he told his disciples what to pray. Other times he does so implicitly by just including a good prayer in Scripture. But when we study the prayers of Scripture, they tend to sound pretty different from many of our prayers. Because biblical prayers don't tend to be focused on our health as much as on our holiness. Or they're more about our sanctification than about our safety. Or they they don't focus on temporary needs and situations as much as on eternal values. They tend to be big picture prayers. Asking God for big things that only God can do. Such is the case for a short prayer that we're going to hear the Apostle Paul pray today. A prayer prayer that was offered not for himself, but for his friends in the church in Philippi. Go ahead and turn to the book named after the believers in Philippi, Philippians. It's in the New Testament, chapter 1 in Philippians. If you're taking one of the Bibles in front of you from the pews, that will be on page 980. This book we're going to be looking at was actually a letter that Paul wrote to this little church which he helped start. And I just hope that his words that he prayed so long ago can encourage us today. Because they're not only what Paul wanted for the Philippians, they're actually what God wants for all his people, including you and me. And I hope his words can also inspire us today to pray more and to pray better. And not just for ourselves, but for one another. So before we do talk about prayer, let's actually pray, right? That sounds like... A good idea? Do you bow your hearts with me and and pray together? Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us today by your Spirit. May our hearts be captured by these words to us. I pray that you would change our hearts from what they are now, hardened and, and calloused, and soften them to hear from you. I pray for those that are here that may not know you, that they be brought to know you this morning. And for all of us, that we be encouraged and inspired in our faith to grow more like you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be starting in verse 9 today, but in order to get Paul's flow of thought, let's read from the beginning, shall we? Start in verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So can you sense the deep 
love and care that Paul had for these people he was writing to. He's so grateful to God for them, for their partnership in his ministry. We can also already sense how much Paul centers everything on Jesus, on his gospel, his grace. Everything's about that. Verse 9 is part of the same paragraph that we just were reading in most of our Bibles, but it begins a new thought. It also begins a new long sentence which runs on for three full verses. And this sentence is a prayer. See, Paul knew that the most important thing, the most loving thing he could do for the Philippians was to pray for them. But instead of just saying, you know, I'm praying for you guys, he actually shares his prayer with them, his actual prayer. We get to eavesdrop on his prayer today. And actually... The main point for us revolves around it. Last week's message, if you remember, was that we should always be thankful, right? This week's is that we should always be prayerful. We should always be prayerful. We need to always be in prayer for one another like Paul was for his friends in Philippi. We should always be prayerful. Paul's already told them, that he was praying for them with gratitude and joy. We saw that verse 3 said, I thank my God in all my remembrance to you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now, he's going to go into much more depth on his prayer. Look with me in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a great set of verses. What a great prayer. What does it mean for us? Well, foundationally, it implies that we have to pray, right? And if God led Paul to pray like this, we should follow his example and pray like this too. And this point may be only implied from these verses, but it's definitely true. In other places, Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. First of all. Top priority, pray for everyone. Or how about Ephesians 6.18, part of the armor of God. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.17, very simply, pray without ceasing. Should mention here. You're confused at all about what prayer is. I mean, we're talking about you might not even know what it is. Here's a simple definition. Okay, to pray is to commune or communicate with God. That's prayer, to commune and or communicate with God. Since God is infinite and everywhere, he can hear all of us anywhere at the same time. It's pretty incredible. Prayer is the supernatural ability we have, the opportunity we have to speak with God. 
So it's also one of the absolute most neglected practices, though. It's a great privilege, totally neglected practice for many Christians, and I think that's to our severe detriment. Our schedules are too busy, our days are too full, and our minds are too preoccupied. If we have a spare moment, we fill it with surfing or texting or vegging. We don't see the value or the importance of prayer, so we neglect it. But I'll tell you this, for individuals and for a church, a prayerless church will inevitably become a powerless church. Prayer is what taps each one of us into the limitless resources and love of God. And it's probably the greatest privilege we've ever been given in our lives. And without it, we will starve and wither spiritually. I'm still growing in this area of my life. So I'm preaching to myself first here. But let me give you a few quick ideas, a few things that God's used for me to help me grow a little bit in praying more often. I mean, first of all, if you are able to make a consistent time every day to pray as a habit, that's great. But that might be too big of a first step for many of you, more something to work toward. It also doesn't address praying all the time, like these scriptures talk about, without ceasing. There are simpler things you can do to make a big difference in your prayer life. One, you can make a list of prayer requests, post them around your house as reminders to pray, maybe on mirrors, in showers, maybe in your car's dashboard, times that you have to tell yourself and you can pray, maybe on your computer's background or on your phone's wallpaper, right? Post the prayers there. Wherever you'll see the requests regularly so they remind you. Speaking of phones... They're usually more of a distraction than a help, right? But I'd encourage you to redeem the use of your technology. The technology you have in your pockets all the time, right? Set reminders or alarms to remind you just to pray, even for a minute each day. There's also an app for that. There's actually two great free apps I use, if you're interested at all. Two ones that I use are PrayerMate. And echo. You can write that down, prayer mate and echo. But they're, they just handily keep, the, keep it in front of you all day long to be reminding you to pray. Another way, as you read scripture, turn whatever you're reading into a prayer, especially from the Psalms. Okay, whenever you read an actual prayer in the Bible, make a note of it. Maybe write it down. Make a point to pray that prayer. Maybe even memorize it. Finally, here, here's a really practical one for you. When someone asks you to pray for them, don't say, I'll pray for you, and then forget it. We all do that, right? We're all liars. So, if you're forgetful like me, <laughs> whenever you tell someone that you'll pray for them, Shoot up a prayer at that very moment. Okay? You'll likely forget later on, so do it right then. That way, not only are you honest, but you're actually being prayerful. Now, you may be convinced here. Okay, 
Obviously, Scripture is clear. We need to pray more. It can never hurt to pray more. But you may think, but I don't even know what to pray for. What do I, what do I even say when I approach God? Well, that's where we get into the meat of this prayer of Paul's in Philippians. The central request of his prayer is something that we should still pray even today. Verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I hope that this becomes our experience reality here at Calvary. We should always be prayerful for wise love to abound among us. We should always pray for love, for discerning wise love to abound among us. Remember that in verse 8, Paul just got done affirming his deep love for the Philippians. He said, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus loves you. I love you. And I pray that your love would also abound. I pray that your love may abound more and more. Now we actually need to stop for a second and define love. Because our world has some really messed up ideas about love. There are different forms of love for sure. Right? And it can refer to more than one thing. Okay, that's fine. But the biblical picture of love is not some sweet, sentimental emotion or feeling. It is not lustful or sensual or romantic even. It's not love in the way that you love the Blue Jays or a TV show or Adele. Okay? We often love things or people around us for what we can get from them. But biblical love is different. True love is both an emotion and an action together. Love is more than a feeling. It's a, an attribute, even a, a character trait of our lives, which is defined and demonstrated by God himself. By context here, we know that Paul is talking about a love that comes from Jesus, the affection of Christ. And if we look at the way that Jesus loved us, it's all about sacrifice. Christ-like love is about giving, not getting. Paul says, Here that he prays that your love may abound. And we think, well, what kind of love is he actually talking about? Because even the Bible talks about different forms of love. Is he he talking about the love that we have for each other? Or is he talking about the love that we have for God? The answer is both. All of our love. Loving other people without loving God is eternally pointless. And loving God without loving other people is an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. We're to love both. With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Starting with God, flowing to those around us. And Paul's passionate here that believers' love would abound more and more. That it would grow and keep growing and keep growing that it would overflow. 
You may think, well, I do already love God and, and love others. Well, you could be wrong, and you maybe don't yet love as you should. Or you may very well be right. But Paul would say here, you can still grow. There is always room for improvement. Your love can always abound more and more. Paul has implied already that the Philippians had love amongst them. They weren't loveless people. But he wanted it to expand and extend and increase and intensify. Matthew Harmon says, Far from being a static reality, biblical love is something that grows over time and overflows into our thoughts, words, and actions more and more. But did you notice that Paul adds a distinction about the type of love he wants to abound? He says, look again in verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. We ask, well, what, is, what do knowledge and discernment have to do with love? Well, think of it this way. I love my wife. Okay? But did I love my wife before I knew my wife as a person? No, of course not. My love for my wife blossomed and grew as I got to know her. And as I knew her more and more, my love grew more and more. As humans, our love grows as our knowledge deepens. And here, Paul is particularly referring to our knowledge of God, knowing God. And as we know God more, we will love each other more. And as for discernment, this means that we need to love with our eyes wide open. Okay, that love isn't blind for Christians. Love overlooks offenses and offers mercy, yes. But love also delights in the truth. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. And love and truth must always go hand in hand. There's a tendency these days to see love as absolute approval and affirmation of others. This very week, there's a popular Christian author who posted online that they were sick and tired of excluding people because of certain sins in their life. So they were opening their arms wide to everyone to come and be accepted as they were. Now, there's a level of goodness there, right? Because we should welcome and love everyone. That's good. We're all sinners. We all need grace, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. But we cannot close our eyes to sin and stop calling people to repentance. To do so, actually, ironically, is the most unloving thing we could ever do. If a doctor sees something life-threatening on an x-ray of yours, it's not loving to hide that from you and pretend that everything's good. 
If they care about you at all, they will lovingly share the truth with you. And as we'll see shortly, true love isn't approval of everything. It's approval of what is excellent. We need truth to discern how and when and where to love best, to love as Christ loved us. So he says, praise that our, knowledge, our love would abound with our knowledge and discernment. I put it down as wise love because I think wisdom is what you get when you combine knowledge, knowing someone with discernment, knowing how to love them. We get wisdom. Wisdom is practical, lived knowledge. I think Paul's essentially describing wise love. I like how the message paraphrases this verse. He says, This is my prayer, that your love will flourish, and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings. So here's my question at this point for us, whether or not we love much or love well right now, are you praying for that kind of love? Are you praying that your love would abound? Because the fact that Paul prays for this, he doesn't just tell them, love each other. He prays for this. It implies that it's God who gives these things to them. It's God who empowers us. We can't just muster up abounding love. God must do this work in us. What we're going to do right now is we're going to put this into practice right away. We're going to pray together. Okay? So what I want you to do is turn to one other person. There is one other person. Okay? Maybe one more if you're going to exclude someone. But that's it. If you don't know them, learn their name. And then it's very simple. I want you to pray this prayer from verse 9 for each other. Okay, not for yourself. Pray it for each other. Take 10 seconds, 2 minutes, whatever you need. Bow your hearts and, think, and talk to God on behalf of the person next to you. Go ahead.
In Jesus' name, amen. How'd that feel? Kind of new? Unnatural a bit? It's because we don't do it enough, right? But I hope that this can give you something more substantial for your prayer vocabulary every day. Something to pray for. Let's pray daily that our love would abound more and more and more and more and more. All right? Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't get it. What's the point of doing this? Why should we pray these things? What difference will saying some little prayer actually make? It's a good question. And to be honest, we don't understand all the mysteries of prayer and how it works. But what we do know is that God tells us to pray, and he tells us that it makes a difference. So we do it. It's not that God can't do certain things if we don't pray, but sometimes he won't if we don't. But when we do pray, God accomplishes things in us and through us. Paul's going to reveal a couple of these great things God does through our prayers. Here's the first one. We should always be prayerful for wise love to abound among us so that so that righteousness will flourish in us. We should always pray for our love to abound so that righteousness will flourish in us. Look with me. This is what Paul says our love will lead to. He says, my prayer that your love may abound more and more, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, if you see those phrases, there's, there's a present aspect of righteousness here and a future aspect of righteousness. This present outworking of righteousness is closely connected with our discernment from verse 9. If we have a love that is shaped by knowledge and discernment, we are then able to, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, which leads to a righteous life now, improving what is excellent. Recently, I had to go purchase a new computer, but I didn't just want to go buy any old computer. I, wanted, I had a budget that I needed to work within and a certain amount of money I could spend, but I wanted the best possible computer I could buy for that amount of money, the best bang for my buck. So I went online and to different websites, chose a few different computers, and then I did a side-by-side comparison of them to, find, to figure out which is the best option. Okay, so like this one has the best speed, this one has the best storage, this other one has the best ports for what I want to use it for, this one's the best price, and then I looked at them, evaluated them, decided, okay, this one is the best features, it combines the best features, this is the one for me. I could, I could have picked just any computer, but I wanted to pick the best option. Now, in this life, There are hundreds of choices and decisions we have to make. There are hundreds of of activities or events we will have to choose to do or not do. There are hundreds of things we have to decide. We have to decide what to do with our precious time every day, with our money, with our energy, with our resources. How are you going to use what God has given us? 
it, it can be hard enough sometimes to discern between what is right and wrong in life, the good and the bad. It's even harder to discern between the good and the best, between the permissible and the preferable, or the acceptable and the excellent. So how do we do this? How can we not only make the right decisions, but the best ones? How do we decide what is really important in life? What really counts? In other words, how can we approve what is excellent and live righteously? Well, that's where wise love comes in. God gives us love and and wisdom for a reason. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. God helps us here. This is one reason that we need to pray that our love and wisdom would abound so that we can live discerning righteous lives by the power of the Spirit. But wise love doesn't only lead to righteousness now, good decisions, wise decisions now. It actually leads to righteousness in the future. Look again in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Pure and blameless. Now, on our own, we are the furthest thing from pure or blameless. But this says we can actually be pure and blameless one day. Not only forgiven, but freed and cleansed and restored to holiness. When will this happen? Well, it says on the day of Christ. That's the day that Jesus returns to earth. We cannot possibly live as God wants us to live this day if our eyes aren't fixed on that day. Our goal in life should not be to be admired or wealthy or comfortable in this short lifetime because it's all going to pass away. Our goal in life should be to stand before God as a faithful and righteous servant. But what this prayer says is that one day that's possible, that followers of Jesus Christ will be righteous before him. But how is that possible? How could wicked sinners like us ever be pure and blameless? Well, on one level, our right living actually helps us progressively grow in holiness. The word for pure here has the idea of being unmixed or unsullied, undefiled by the world around us, like pure water without a trace of dirt or impurities in it. So as we increasingly grow in love and wisdom, we increasingly approve of what is right behavior, and so we become more righteous, mixing less and less with evil and worldly things, not letting sinful defilement into our lives because we love God more than that. But let me ask you, will we ever make enough right decisions in life to make up for our sin? No way. We will not, we cannot. 
Yes, we can grow in holiness through righteous living, but we can never become completely holy and righteous through our own behavior. Can't happen. Our righteous living alone can never make us fully pure and blameless. But Paul knows this. And I think he shows that there's something deeper at work here. Notice, what does Paul say in verse 11? He says, verse 10, So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. You notice that? Comes through Jesus Christ. Full righteousness, purity, blamelessness comes through Jesus Christ. Of course, that points us right back to what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for us. We could never be righteous enough to please God, to meet his standards. So Jesus came as one of us and lived a perfectly righteous life for us. We can never pay the penalty for our infinitely offensive sins against God. So Jesus came and died, taking that death penalty on himself. We can never see hope beyond our short, painful, sin-filled lives. And so Jesus came and crushed death, rising again, offering the hope of eternal life, life beyond this life. And because he's done all of this, for us. Not only can he help us live right lives in the present, when he comes back, God can see us as perfectly righteous because of Jesus. We just have to believe that all of this is true and stake our lives on it. Centering our lives on Christ instead of on ourselves and our sin. Ready to do that today? If, if so, you can come to Christ today, like we sing, just as you are. He doesn't leave you just as you are, but you can come just as you are. Broken, wounded, desperate, empty, and guilty. And by the blood of Jesus, you'll be welcomed in and made righteous. And once we're made righteous before God, and and we're growing in righteous conduct, we will bear fruit. Some of you are just getting ready to plant your gardens for this summer. In a few months, you hope to reap a harvest of fruit from that garden. Maybe you're hoping for a, a bumper crop of tomatoes, or carrots, or peppers, or beans, or whatever you're planting. But are we hoping to one day reap a bumper crop of righteousness? So that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This fruit of righteousness, this is is the fruit that we bear as we love much and we love well. This is the fruit that we bear as we wisely approve of what is truly excellent. 
This is the fruit that we bear as we weed out impurities and sin in our lives. And most importantly, this is the fruit that we bear as we respond to the good news of Jesus. Because we can work on being better people till the cows come home. But we will never be righteous enough to bear fruit apart from Christ. As Jesus himself said in John 15, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. May righteousness flourish and bear fruit in you and in me on this day for that day. But ultimately, we shouldn't hope to do this, to to bear fruit for our own sake or even for other people's sake. There is a much more important motivation, purpose, and result that we should be aiming for. And we see this in the final phrase of Paul's prayer. Read it once more. The whole prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what's the ultimate point of all this? For God to be glorified through us. Here's how I sum it up. We must always be prayerful for wise love to abound among us so that righteousness will flourish in us so that God will be praised through us. We should pray that love will abound so righteousness flourishes so God is praised. Do you know that this is why you exist on the face of this earth? We were created to bring honor and glory to our creator. And you can see, we naturally praise other things or other people around us. You can see this in the way that we admire or celebrate other people, like celebrities or athletes, or in the way that we talk up our favorite books or music or movies or sports teams. We just praise things all the time. Not all of that is inherently bad as long as we allow our praise to flow over the gift and back to the giver. We, we do end up frequently being idolatrous, but that's not my point right now. My point is just that we were made to glory in something beyond ourselves. Believe it or not, God's ultimate goal for your life is not your happiness. It's not even your godliness. It's his glory. Our righteousness and godliness are great byproducts. And these things are actually intended to show off God's greatness even more. So the, the, the flow of thought of this, these verses. This means that any spiritual fruit that you bear in your life is only secondarily for your benefit. The fruit we bear is primarily for God's praise and glory. 
Matthew Harmon says, all that God does for, to, in, and through the believer is ultimately so that his own greatness may be displayed and recognized. On the last day, when others look at us, they aren't meant to go, wow, what awesome people. They're meant to go, wow, what an awesome God they have. Because who else would take guilty, broken, worthless, damned sinners and choose to lavish love on them? Give them grace and mercy. Die for them. Grant them eternal life. Cleanse them. Claim them, redeem them, make them righteous, and glorify them. That's what our God has done and will do. That's why everything we do is to be for His glory. May wise love abound in us so that righteousness will flourish in us so that God will be praised through us. This is my prayer for me. I need love to abound and righteousness to flourish in me. But this is also my prayer for you as your pastor. You need this. We need this. May it be our constant prayer for each other. Whenever we come into God's presence, may we not just ask for pitifully small and temporary things, but may we ask for big things, things that will last for eternity, things that only God can do among us and in us and through us for his glory. Before the worship team comes up, I'm going to have us stop and pray together again. So turn to your partner. Each of you take a minute, pray this prayer from Philippians 1 for one another. And then I'll pray for all of us, and we'll close appropriately with praise. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace to be able to come before your throne now to pray these things. Pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. That everything we do from day to day would bear fruit of righteousness in love for your glory. I pray even for those who today may laugh this off as a silly exercise, pointless. Would you claim them as your own? Would you show them your love? Draw them to their knees. May we all spend our lives on our knees before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand one more time.